Good evening, everyone. And I hope you're having a wonderful evening wherever you might be. Welcome to Caribbean Bridges. My name is Justin Ram, and I'm sitting in for my great friend, Julian Rogers, who decided that this weekend he wanted a weekend off. And I, being the button for punishment, agreed to do that for him. However, there's really no punishment in me doing this this evening. Um, since I'm going to be discussing the very important topic of COVID-19 and the economy. It's a very important topic for us because let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, one of these we need to eradicate, but the other, we really need to think about how we resuscitate. And I am really privileged this evening to have assembled a great list of guests to help me discuss this very important topic with you. So let me just introduce each of them in the meantime. First up, I have who I consider to be a true economic visionary of our region. Um, she is Therese Turner-Jones, and she's a country manager for the Inter-American Development Bank. Welcome, Therese. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Happy to be here. Great. Secondly, I have a good friend of mine who I consider to be one of the brightest economists in the region and who I also know is a fellow libertarian. He has also recently started up a health tech company called Medal. Let me introduce you to Kiran Mathur Mohammed. Hi, Justin. Um, happy, happy to be part of the libertarian conspiracy. <laughs> Thank you, Kiran. And last, good by one, no good means, one, good one. last by no means least, I have who's also a, a dear friend of mine and whom I consider to be the region's preeminent expert on trade. She is Dr. Jan Eves Remy, who is the deputy director of the Sridhar Ramphal Center for International Trade, Law, Policy and Services at the UWI Cave Hill campus. Welcome, Jan Eves. Thank you so much. That's a very generous introduction, but I'll take it. It's Saturday. Thanks for having us. Exactly. Well, it's, it's Saturday and I'm keeping you all away from a glass of wine. So, you know, all introductions need to be very generous, but they are true. So I really want to get straight into the discussion um, with, all, with all three of you. Now, we're going to be discussing this very important topic of the COVID-19 and its impact on our economies. Um, we all know that it has been really tough for us in the Caribbean. Um, most of our economies have declined maybe by double digits all, all over the Caribbean, except perhaps for Guyana which I think I really want to use this statistic to actually help our audience members understand how bad it has really been. Before COVID-19, Guyana's economy was scheduled to grow by 80% in 2020. And when COVID hit, it only grew by about 30%. So COVID has actually knocked off about 50 percentage points off of, off of growth for, for Guyana. So you, could you imagine what that has also meant for the rest of the Caribbean? So in addition to GDP declining, we have had uh, debt levels rising, massive layoffs and high unemployment. It's been really, really tough. And, and just to remind each of you all, in, in about four months time, all mother nature is coming around with that hurricane season. And we can only hope that we are not hit by any severe hurricanes this year. But anyway, today, I don't wanna um, speak only about the gloomy economy. We really need to speak about how we resuscitate our economies going forward. And so, Therese, um, earlier I said that you are, in my mind, one of our leading economic visionaries um, for, for, for the Caribbean. You, of course, have a wonderful vantage point from where you sit at the IDB. Please tell us, I mean, what has COVID really meant for our economies and how do you think we need to adjust in order to, to get out of this? I mean, you picture you painted a, a picture already of of how grim the reality has been, right? So, double digit declines in 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 GDP uh, throughout this region, and the tourism economies, of course, got hit even even more so than the commodity dependent ones. So, if you want to separate Bahamas, Barbados, Jamaica, Eastern Caribbean from the commodity producers like Diana, which you just referenced, even though they took a big hit from the projections, right? Not even 80, the projection was actually 85%. It went down to 53 and then it went finally to around 30. Um, so we're all feeling the economic fallout of that. I mean, 
tourism as an industry globally has been the single industry to you know be decimated around the world so it's not just not just our region but it's around the world so it's been grim now having said that um what we did see too in 2020 what we're seeing now in 2021 is how quickly uh, commerce uh, as well as some governments have moved to the digital world right and and justin you rightly say that i've been on this this idea for a long time now to say that the region really needs to sort of digitize itself to be more modern to be more competitive to keep up so i'm seeing we saw a lot of that in 2020 we continue to see more of that i think that's one of the pathways uh, to recovery and of course the other pathway is um, is to look towards um, greening of our economies and so what do i mean by that uh, we know that we've spent uh, you know most of the last 50 decade 50 odd years totally uh, dependent on fossil fuels and we've also known that for the last 20 odd years we've been trying to diversify our, our energy mix so this is a good opportunity to look to um, renewable energy whether it's wind whether it's solar or thermal whether it's you know waves um, there are all kinds of ways in which we can um, do that but of course it's easier said than done because i think we have to separate how we move in the short term to recover and what could be a medium to long term path out of out of this what i call economic calamity you know just in just this morning as i'm watching the news out of texas and i must say this word weatherize has become like the term to say that you've made your infrastructure more resilient at least for the texans but i keep thinking about <clears throat> our region because you mentioned it and that in a few months we're going to be uh, back into hurricane season and uh, let's hope that and pray that it's it will it was as mild it will be as mild as 2020 but we can't ever predict that correctly correctly so think about how we build infrastructure now because that's another way out of this uh economic mess right so there are we know that in our region you know this from your previous work and we know this from all the capital budgets that we see shrinking around the region that yeah. investing in smart resilient infrastructure could also be one of those bridges to to a better looking economy when this pandemic is behind us but i think we also have to especially given that we this is a a widely broadcast discussion this afternoon and even though it's a saturday afternoon we don't want to be too grim but i think it's important for us to we can't sort of not live the reality we're in which is until we're all vaccinated to a sufficient degree it's going to be a long haul so yeah. this pathway i'm i'm describing is also contingent on us having access to the vaccines quickly and massively so 16% of the population is not at it it needs to be 60% of the population so there's a lot to do there um i'll i'll stop there because i know others have so have views on this but i think there are there are clear pathways to the future that look better but we have yeah. this reality that we're stuck with right now we need to get on with how to mitigate the impact of even worsening declines yeah. on our gdp and on our human capital and get on with it. Yeah. No, thank you Therese for that great um overview of what's been happening and you've actually provided us with a a wonderful segue to speak about vaccinations. Um Kiran, uh 2 weeks ago both of us we wrote an article in the Newsday newspaper for in in uh, Trinidad and Tobago which then went sort of viral around the Caribbean about the need for us to really consider mass vaccinations um because it's the only way we're going to get out of all of these these lockdowns um tell me why is that important and is there some way for us to consider how we finance this 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 mass vaccination of our region well justin i think this is a single biggest challenge that is facing the region right now there is nothing else but this because right now we only have access to vaccines via covax which is a facility that allows caribbean governments 
to, uh, to obtain vaccines uh, for up to 20% of the population. There are some sort of bilateral discussions happening, of course, India in Barbados and, and, and in other parts of the Caribbean and some discussions with the African Union. But the plain fact of the matter is we are massively short of the 90% of vaccines and vaccination capacity required in order to reopen. As of right now, the situation is very dire and regional governments are saying that it will take us until 2023 to reach herd immunity. What that means is that life in 2020 is going to keep happen, keep being, uh, if you've lived through 2020, I think we've all had like fairly harrowing experiences, of course, some, uh, some worse than others. Uh, but the reality is I think no one of us wants to go through what we went through last year again. And we're going to have to have a repeat of it. It's going to be like Groundhog year, uh, Day again this year. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and, and, and next year as well, unless we get our acts together. Yes. Um, and, and But Justin, I mean, in terms of finance, I mean, Therese sort of, you know, it, it's fantastic that, that she is here uh, as well, because I know the IDB has, has been a, a, an integral part to the financing of, of COVID-19 solutions, specifically CAFA, the, the, the Caribbean institution, which has been managing the response. Um, but really, this is a case where cooperation is absolutely critical because we need all of the Caribbean governments to come together and as one and order vaccines. And by the way, not wait for WHO approval to order vaccines, because by the time that happens, everyone else has already gotten ahead of us in the queue. We need to order the vaccines before that approval arrives, obviously for responsible late stage candidates, but before that approval has arrived. And individually, you know, individually, one tiny country, one tiny island is not gonna get recognition from the big vaccine companies who are getting calls from, from prime ministers of big countries. We need to yeah. do this as a group. This is our time for regional integration. Great. Karan, thanks so much for that. Um, and, I, and I couldn't agree more. Um, we really need to consider how we go about this whole process of mass vaccinations. Um, one of the challenges I've been hearing recently is that we seem to have a lot of anti-vaccination vaccination sentiment around the region as well. Um, recently, Barbados um, received um, a donation of vaccines um, from, from India. And I think I really want to make it clear to all of the listening public that those vaccines that we got from India is actually called Covishield, but it is the same vaccine as the AstraZeneca, that which, has what's, which was developed out of the Oxford University in the United Kingdom. But I think we're going to have a real um, challenge on our hands to ensure that we get up to that vaccination, to that percentage whereby we can, can, can consider that we have herd immunity. Now, Janives, we heard, we heard um, Karan speaking about the need for us to come together and to vaccinate. Maybe it's easier for us if we could perhaps procure all of the vaccines at the same time in, in CARICOM. I don't know, you know, it's a, it's a difficult um, situation. But, you know, recently I saw where the World Trade Organization, somewhere where you have previously worked, um, they're actually now going to have a new head of the WTO, um, a fantastic, a fantastic woman. Um, her name is Ngozi Okonjo-Ewela. And what really struck me in her first interview was she said that her priority at the WTO would be to ensure that there's vaccine equality. Now, I, you are you are you are the trade expert, and I'm trying to figure out what does the WTO have to do with vaccines now, and and where does what role do they play? Why is trade so important in this? Right. Thanks again, Justin, for the opportunity. So, before I answer your question, I just want to um, record that you know the selection and final clearance. Um, for Ngozi um, has been long awaited and it's a great momentous occasion for those of us of color. Um, so the Africa and the, the Africa diaspora, which I, I count the Caribbean as, um, and also the first woman. 
Um, now, Ngozi, and I take some liberties because, you know, spelling out her name is, is very diff difficult for us. Um, so she has ascended the throne, let's say, finally, thanks to the Biden administration's acceptance of her after we had heard that, you know, Trump and, and, and Lighthizer had, um, you know, decided not to uh, form the consensus for her selection. But she, she comes to the WTO at a very fortuitous time for her and the WTO one. You ask what the WTO has to do with all of this. Well, first of all, the, the WTO is sort of the, the place where all the trade and the rules for trade happen. Um, and it has taken quite a fundamental role, even if notional, um, when the lockdown started. So with all of these export restrictions we saw happening, the shutdown of the economy, obviously that has trade impacts. And so the WTO really started an aggressive campaign, um, even if at the time it was leaderless, um, to, to sort of at least track and try to get governments um, and members of the WTO to sit together and try to commit not to have these export restrictions and other trade restricting impacts because of COVID. So food supplies, medical supplies. So the WTO has asserted itself in this space. Now, speaking about vaccines in particular, the reason I say it's fortuitous is because we know that Ngozi is the chair. And in fact, her previous position was chair of the Gavi Alliance. And Gavi, as we know, is a vaccination alliance that is working with the WHO um, to, to facilitate the COVAX and the ACT Accelerator uh, program so that developing countries and least developed countries have access to the vaccine. Now, the reason it becomes very, very critical to WTO is because we have something at the WTO called the agreements relating to trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. And what that means is that um, the, the WTO sort of has to ensure, because of that TRIPS agreement, that IP rights are respected. One of the WTO members, in fact two, South Africa and India, brought before the council a suggestion that IP rights should be waived in order to ensure that the manufacturing capacity, because I think Kieran was talking about the fact that CARICOM should come together and finance the option. We have a problem that is broader than that, which is of supply. Uh, and so what you have is that there are some countries who have secured their supply through bilateral agreements um, with these major manufacturing capacity uh, or companies, but most of the countries like ours do not have these bilateral arrangements. So what the, the South Africans and the Indians want is to waive intellectual property rights of these pharmaceutical companies so you can have compulsory licensing in order to ensure that countries that have no manufacturing capacity can source these vaccines from manufacturers in countries that are willing to export to them. So in a sense, it would mean you have to ensure that these vaccines are procured, but potentially by waiving IP rights. Now, what Ngozi has said is, we do not want to see that, we do not want to see that happen because there's a delicate balance between ensuring that pharmaceutical companies want to innovate and obviously having equitable distribution. So she has said that there should be a third way um, and she hasn't really described what that should be, but at least get all the members to come together and figure out a solution. And we're seeing now with the G7 announcement yesterday that bigger countries are saying that they will ensure after their domestic capacity um, and their domestic, um, the domestic situation is secured, then they will, they will sort of ensure that developing countries have access to that, these vaccines. So just in a nutshell, the WTO, I think, because of the personality of Ngozi and her previous, you know, work with Gavi, will take this on. But the, the exact, I think it will be more of an advocacy role that Ngozi will play in order to bring all of the big guns together. And there's very little likelihood, I think, that that waiver of IP rights will happen. But she'll try a third way to get everybody to agree to some kind of arrangement where those without the manufacturing capacity and who are outside of these deals with the big pharmaceutical companies get access to the vaccines. Thanks. Well, it sounds to me like we're very fortunate as world citizens to have Ngozi in that um, very important position. Anyway, this is Caribbean Bridges and I am Justin Ram with you this evening. So coming back to discuss um, this topic, um, Therese. So of course, vaccination is really important for us <clears throat> to help us get out of this um, quagmire that we're currently in. But we really don't want to return to normalcy, do we? We don't want to go back to where we were, because I think you mentioned it, Therese, that 
you know, as a as as a region, we were already in a in a sort of a bad patch before this. And Therese, I know that you're probably the biggest advocate, and you said it earlier, for digitalization in the region. And we have made some progress over this COVID period. And do you think that that's still critical for us? And and why? Why is that so important? Um, but before I go there, I just want to make a, a comment because it came to me as as Jan was talking about about vaccines and access. So just to say, I I think because what what I know of the world of Covax and where we are now is that it's going to be very very difficult to have more supply, as you mentioned, on a bilateral basis. If CARICOM can come together and we figure out a way to have access as a group, I think that could work. But it's a little late. And you know, when these discussions were started in the middle of last year and the IDB was in the middle of trying to get all the countries to sign on and so on, that was probably the time to go at it as a group. And again, we're caught on our back, back foot, uh, Justin, because we didn't go at it as a group, right? And so we're paying for that again. So that I think there's a lesson there. Very happy about Ngozi. You know, I, I was on a committee with her. She was on the task force that, that uh, PM Motley put together on, on, on CARICOM uh, all of last year before we work together so i'm very proud of that and i think she's going to be a huge 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 advocate for developing countries and far regions so just want to shout out to her too on your question of you know where are we and <clears throat> definitely there's no going back to 2019 because this region we know is has been one of the long uh the laggards in terms of technology adoption and adaptation and and so on if you look at all of the manufacturing plants throughout this region, there are very few of them, less than a third, have uh, R&D research and development arms and institutions, so they're not innovating to the extent that they, that they should. We know, because we deal with government agencies as citizens every single day, we know that our, our region is also too paper-based. We still need too much paper to get the simplest transaction done. We know that sometimes it takes more than one visit to an agency to get that single transaction done. In fact, Maker is the one average. It's the, the country where you're more likely to be frustrated by having to make up to eight visits sometimes to get one transaction done. Um, and so we need to speed that up. We need to make sure that government can deliver, you know, driver's licenses, birth certificates, you know, all these things that we need whether it's to authenticate ourselves so that we can do a financial sector transaction or open up a business, we need more tech, we need more instant ways of doing things. And by the way, you know, every Caribbean person knows this because we know how easy it is to do business in other countries. We travel to the US, we go to Canada, we go to UK, we know how simple it can be to do some transactions, but somehow we are prepared to stand in line in multiple government agencies to carry out the same transactions. That has to change. We cannot go back there. And happily, um, you know, with or without IDB support, several countries in the region are, are making uh, big headways there. And I think that will help us be more competitive. That'll help us be more customer-centric. You know, it's not, you know, if only public servants will see their jobs as to facilitate economic activity, to make the public get what they need quicker, to be more service-oriented, to deliver on what they're supposed to deliver. And so we need to keep accelerating in, in that vein. And I think, as you know, technology and all of its uses growing at an exponential rate is the way to do that because um, you can scale up quickly, things are much more effect, uh, efficient, um, government can get savings, and every citizen citizen should be happy. So. We need to see more of that, and there's no turning back to pre-COVID days in, in terms of what our citizens want. And what we've seen, of course, in 2020 is many places have adapted, even in the private sector. So the fact that you can order your groceries online in Jamaica and have it delivered in a couple of hours, I mean, that was unheard of in 2019. But now, 
businesses are offering those services because to stay relevant, to stay in business, they need to be able to adapt in order to, to, to stay in touch with their customers. And I'm seeing that all over the region. It's not just in Jamaica or in the Bahamas where I experienced that over, over the Christmas holidays. We are adapting, we're adjusting. Look at health sector, the health sector. And of course, Kiran can talk more about this. Yeah. But imagine if telemedicine was the norm, right? Imagine how many people might not have been exposed to the virus if they didn't have to go into a doctor's office or present themselves physically at clinics, public clinics, if they felt ill. If you could have that visit by Skype or on a computer or even on a telephone, that would make things so much easier. So I think we're going there, Justin. I'm really, really, really encouraged. And okay. I'm encouraged because we, we, as you said, it's no turning back. And uh, once we've had a taste of that, we're not going to go back. Yeah. Now, Therese, you're, you're absolutely correct. Huh? Um, and, I, and I've experienced it recently. As you know, I've branched off to become an entrepreneur myself. And so I've experienced it firsthand how difficult it can be to start a business. Um, and all of the paperwork that's still required. Um, you know, I was I was lamenting to some friends that um, I, I know that, for example, in the United Kingdom, I can register a business over there in certainly in less than one hour. And I would have my, my certificates sent to me electronically. Um, but he, I remember trying to do that recently in the region. And it took me weeks to do. I had to get all the forms notarized. And so I, I, I know, I, I, I do feel the pain right now. And I hope that we move towards this digital revolution and it is here to stay. Now, I think that's a really lovely way for me to ask Kiran because Kiran, you are actually in the belly of the beast when it comes to um, starting up a business and really understanding why is it important for us to go digital. Um, you have recently started up your health technology firm, Medal. Could you tell us what is Medal? What what is it about, and why did you decide to do this? And and while you were setting it up, what were some of the challenges that you faced in trying in trying to do that? Sure. I mean, of course, Justin. I mean, uh, I think Therese really really sort of spoke to it very clearly, and uh, in terms of. COVID-19 is forcing us to adapt and, and, and the only way we can do that is using technology and driving technology. But I, I mean, Justin, and I'm sure this has been your experience with, um, with, with, with starting up GSEC, um, but the, the interesting thing, you mentioned some of the problems and difficulties. It is very hard. It is way harder to start a company in, in Trinidad, for example, or in any Caribbean com, uh, country than, for example, if we were in Europe, if we were in, the, in San Francisco. But also that actually what, what I've come to realize very begrudgingly almost is that that's almost one of its strengths. Because we have so many problems here that if you're willing to really sit down and do the legwork, you can really actually say, hang on, uh, we can solve these problems for people like us, people in developing countries. And, uh, and if we can solve the problems for people like us, um, uh, and we can really help the most vulnerable in society, not just in Trinidad, not just in Jamaica or the, or the rest of the Caribbean, but actually take that and help people in throughout the developing world. Um, so what, what, uh, what we've been doing is it sort of started just before COVID-19. And what Medal does is we allow doctors to electronically prescribe to patients and then patients can then access their prescriptions through our app which we then uh, then fill and deliver through our own in-house pharmacy and because we can cut down a lot of the costs involved in that that means we don't charge the patients for delivery and don't charge the doctors for the use of the app um, by so by doing so what we can really do is 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 several things one we solve the problem that one in two prescriptions are never filled which is a huge huge issue given that half of the caribbean populations are suffering from diabetes and heart disease chronic care issues but the second thing is covid 19 i mean therese said it absolutely crucially i mean with healthcare um, we need to seriously and fully rethink how we are delivering healthcare in order to protect our most vulnerable, the immunocompromised, 
because particularly since it seems that the that uh, unless um, we can really uh, strongly cooperate on vaccine procurement, um, there are a lot of our most vulnerable. We're seeing the surge in Jamaica. We're seeing what's happening in Barbados. A lot of our most vulnerable are still at risk. Okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you, thank you, Karan. And uh, metal sounds really, really interesting. And I, I invite all of our viewers to certainly check out your app and your and your website to see what beautiful work you've been doing there. I, I hope that it becomes available throughout the Caribbean because as Therese said, that's a type of service we need to become much more digitalized. So that's, that's, that's really wonderful. Now, I know that we are here and we're probably um, singing to the, to the converted about the wonders of, of, of technology. Um, now, Janice, I seem to be asking you some difficult questions and this is this one. This one is going to be a little bit difficult as well, because I think all of you would understand that over the last four or five years, we saw this increase in populism with respect to many of our established democracies around the world. Um, and there have been many commentators who have said that the reason for this push towards populism was always around the strive towards globalization, as well as the advent of technology and the impact that that has been having on traditional jobs. So, Janives, um, from where from where you sit, um, how do we now convince what is probably a bit of a skeptical population out there that we still need to go down this digitalization path? Right, thanks for the question. I mean, I think, I, I don't even think that it's really a question anymore of convincing I mean, one of the ironies of, you know, this populism and backlash epitomized by the likes of President Trump is that he used technology most, you know, effectively to get his message out. And I think it's a generational issue, um, thinking about the, the, the intricacy of, of technology in our lives. I don't think you would go to anybody in the present generation and question how important technology and you know, thinking about it really in terms of social media, et cetera, how integral that is as part of our lives. And I think as the two previous speakers said, um, it's, it's a question of technology making our lives easier, making it better, making things more accessible. The, the point of entry that I kind of want to, to start from is thinking about it in a macro e-commerce, you know, sort of um, framework, which is where I come in as a, as a trade expert. So you know, the intricacy of trade and technology right now is unquestionable. At the WTO, there is a discussion about how to frame the rules that will guide international commerce, because um, quite apart from what was mentioned before about how important it is in making people's lives easier at a, at a domestic level, it is now an engine for trade. E-commerce, um, you know, the numbers uh, in e-commerce are something like $28 trillion worth of trade now. So the real question for the Caribbean is, where do we situate ourselves in that broader landscape of possibilities? And I think examples like Kieran's uh, are, are really the ones we need to track and the ones that we need to follow, thinking way back from our education system and how we get digitally minded and software and all of the different ways that we can conceptualize technology. How do we get that on the agenda and how do we use the tools um, made available as a result of technology to advance our society. So there's two ways that I sort of look at it. One is um, at the government level, you know, all of these moves towards digital transformation financed by the IDB, the World Bank, the Eastern Caribbean has gotten a huge amount of money in order to advance its technology and its digital transformation. But there's some basic things that have to underpin that and undergird it, like access to in the internet. I mean, so there's not even internet access across the Caribbean. So there's still a place and a role for government to ensure that the underlying infrastructure is there in order to enable these e-commerce possibilities to happen. Payment systems, thinking you know, of how we actually get our the value to remain in the Caribbean, because when we use these international platforms, ultimately we use that using third-party platforms. And so as a result, we don't retain a lot of the value um, education, as I mentioned, a lot of the software that we use um, to undergird our technology in the region is still being used by, you know, we're still using outsiders. So how do we ensure that the software development is retained in the Caribbean? Because this is what is powering 
um, our techn technological societies and our digital digital transformation. So how do we keep more of that within the region? And the, the last thing I wanted to mention was really thinking about our place in the discussion of the rules that will form the basis for international e-commerce. So at the WTO now, there is something called a plurilateral discussion happening. It's not done formally under the aegis of the WTO because not all members want to be part of the discussion. But the real interest for the Caribbean is thinking about how we ensure that trade rules that are supposed to facilitate the transfer of data across different countries, etc. How do we extract value from that? Right now, we have a lot of the bigger countries like the United States, China, and the EU dominating the discussions. They have a lot of interest in that. How do we ensure, for instance, that um, you know data localization requirements do not work out you know without our benefits outside of our benefits how do we ensure that payment systems and the rules for payment systems are in our benefit and to our advantage so i think really where we are now is really thinking about how to craft the broader environment for e-commerce rules so that our people actually benefit from these rules that are being crafted by the broader membership of the wto wow Thanks, 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 Janice, and that that was really, really comprehensive. And um, it has me thinking that um, we really need to come together as a region to try to solve some of these problems. Last week, I actually participated in the Africa Digital Finance Summit, and I was on a panel um, with an entrepreneur out of Nigeria, and um, and and of course, he was saying how it was he was able to grow his business certainly within nigeria now he's all over asia he's all over africa as well but it first started off in his home country now with a country with a hundred million plus people you know you you can you can grow your business quite 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 easily now therese you're in jamaica probably the largest of our english-speaking caribbean countries Quran, you are in Trinidad and Tobago, both Janice and I are, are, are in Barbados. Fairly small places in, in the scheme of things. And, 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 I, and I get the sense from what Janice said, Therese, that we have to think about how we come together to work together. And you mentioned this, and Kiran has mentioned this as well. And that, that statement that happened way back when we were trying to do the Federation, you know, the, the one from 10 leaves zero. Every time I, I, I think about it, I think I wake up and with a with a cold sweat. And I think, oh, what a missed opportunity. But, Therese, is CARICOM, yeah, I is mean, CARICOM dead? You know, what 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 can we do? What, what can we do? Can we get regionalism back on its feet? Oh, boy. I mean, I think it's, <laughs> we have to do it in so many different ways. So, first of all, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, it's not that complicated um, because we've been working at it for such a long time. So we know what actually we need to do at, at the national level and at the regional level. But on the other hand, maybe what we need to do is turn it upside down, meaning every citizen I think of this region see themselves as Caribbean. We're very much dedicated to being part of this cultural heritage that we share. And and it's especially strong when, of course, when we leave the region and we, we live somewhere else and, you know, I say I'm from the Bahamas and they think it's somewhere in Jamaica or, or you're from Barbados and they say, oh, where's that? Is that part of Jamaica? Or, uh, for the rest of the world, our little individual people don't really mean that much. It only means something to us because xenophobia is alive and well in every single country and I think in, with every single leader. What, what's lacking is a movement that says, I'm a Bahamian, but I feel as Guyanese as the people born in, in, in Georgetown. And I should feel like uh, I want to, if I want to live in Barbados, I should be able to do that. I'm a Jamaican, I want to move to Ghana, I should be able to do that. Clearly, it's not that easy, right? Because we would have done it already. Yes. What I think we need is this has to be a bottoms up approach because what, what we're seeing after all these decades is that at the leadership level, it's just not there. I think 
in those CARICOM meetings when they're all sitting around the table and they're singing the praises of CARICOM and, you know, they're signing the, the, the communique. I mean, those words mean a lot in those settings. They go back to their headquarters and poof, that's the last we hear until the next July when there's another meeting. We have to break that cycle. And I think breaking that cycle is a mindset change. So until every single person in this region starts to value the whole over the individual, it's not going to change. And why I say mindset change is because I think it's basically mindset that's keeping us in this in this trap of individual individualism versus regionalism. Now, how do you get there? So we can rally around big issues, right? So we have right now we have COVID-19, which is something to rally around. We have climate change, which is something to rally around. We have the lack of competitiveness in our region, which is something to rally around. And uh, <clears throat> if these moments in history don't cause us to rise up and say, okay, now is the time, whether it's because we want to have access to, to vaccines or whether we want to have access to the best online education for our children, because so many thousands of children around this region now are absolutely not learning, and that's a crisis. Whether it's finding out how we can weatherize the Caribbean, that word that they're using in Texas today, to make sure that the next hurricane, like Borean, does not devastate an entire island and set of people. We have to figure out how big does the crisis have to be for us to say, all right, maybe it's time for us to get together. What I do know from working in a multilateral institution now for most of my, my uh, career is that cooperation, collaboration, multilateralism, globalization is the way forward. It can't be that Barbados does it on its own, the Bahamas does it on its own, St. Lucia tries to do it on its own. It does not work, not going to work for all the reasons we know. And all of the trade theories coming out of WTO and our own institutions, CARICOM, we know it doesn't work. Um, I don't know what else is going to drive us to say we all need to gather around the table and, and sort it out as leaders. Um, but I'm hoping maybe the mindset that every single person living in this region says, you know, it's time that we start thinking that I'm a Caribbean person. I'm not a Bahamian. I'm a Caribbean person, which is basically how I carry myself now. Um, until we all take on that identity and start to push our politicians in that direction, it's not going to change, sadly. We need that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is Caribbean Bridges, and I am Justin Ram with you this evening. So, Therese, you just mentioned, I think, a new approach that we have to consider if we want to become one as a region, which is a bottom-up approach. So we really need to empower our people. Um, one of the ways I think that we can do that is if we encourage much more economic freedom, free market liberalism, which I really think is what we need and which really empowers many more people to feel as if they have a voice and ownership within their own economies. Now, Kiran, I, I know that you're a free market economist like I am. I, I, I said earlier that you're a fellow libertarian um, so we're part of that libertarian conspiracy. Um, now, I, I'm always reminded by a past American president who said that the most terrifying nine words in the English language is, I'm from the government and I've come to help. Now, I know that that's a little bit extreme. Um, and, and, I, and I only say it, and I only say it uh, in this. But when you think about where we are, and you as an entrepreneur, um, what's the what's the new role for government in our in our in our region? What should the government be doing? Well, I mean, Justin, I mean, thank you very much for that question. You know, it's one that I would be excited about. But I have to to, to draw on what um, you know, sort of Therese was saying just now, because it's it's absolutely critical right now. I think you and I, everyone, for example, on this webinar, um, would be sort of very aligned that look. 
I mean, there is a place for regulation, but regulation should be enabling. It should be something that is there to catalyze innovation, to support business, to support free enterprise. You know, well, for example, Therese talked about telehealth, right? Um, but for example, even right now, our, our challenge is not the technology. Technology is there. Um, but for example, right now, if a doctor is practicing in Jamaica, they can't practice in Trinidad. If a doctor is practicing Barbados, they can't practice in Guyana. We're a very, very small region. It should be a snap of the finger. Likewise, if a drug is approved in Jamaica, it can't be approved in Trinidad. Why can't we have a, a, a situation where, um, where literally sort of much more harmonization of, of regulations? Why can't a doctor simply um, sort of prescribe and work anywhere in the region? Um, but then that goes back to what Therese is saying. And this is where perhaps there's a gap um, between, I think, you know, folks like like us and many of the people that we know and talk to, where to some extent, I, I mean, I, I am very guilty. And I'm the first person to be guilty of it, of almost being in this this like liberal bubble. Um, uh, you know, even sort of I'm, I'm reading some of the comments uh, here and I, I couldn't help but notice that, you know, literally while folks are talking about um, sort of, you know, regional integration and so and 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 sort of liberal ideals and 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 enabling trade and technology. Many of the comments were really focusing on sort of very, I would say, nationalism. And I think we have to respect. Um, uh, you know, we can't we can't sort of dismiss these views um, because I think we've seen that has happened and. And and resulted in this tide of populism that Jan was was Jan was talking about, right? I mean, we can't dismiss it. We have to say, okay, this exists. This is how folks think. That is how Tanti Tanti is, uh, you know, coming in. Um, uh, and and you know, she's like, you know, I I don't really, you know, feel these these uh, these trainees should be coming in here, um, kind of thing. We we need to be able to engage with this and say, okay, well, hang on, hang on. Because I do really believe that once people are put next to each other, and you see that whenever a Trini and a Guyanese is in London, for example, they all of a sudden they lime in, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, but it really is about how can we communicate this, acknowledge people's concerns as well. Otherwise, the, I, I believe Justin, unless we radically rethink it, the cause of liberalism, as much as I hate to say it, is 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 it will be dead. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's an interesting point, and I think you're you're quite right. We have to take and take on board the concerns of, of of all of our people across the region, and and it sounds to me like we need to do a better job on communication and on, and on, and on education as well. So we've got our work cut out, and but I think I come back to what Therese said about it has to be a bottom up approach. We have to, as people start to drive this and say this is the way we want to go, and this is what we want to see the outcomes to be. Now, now, Johnny, I'm, I'm coming back to you again. I mean, we, you, we, we, we have just been speaking about the need for this bottom-up approach. Um, what should, what's the role of government, free markets, for example? But we live in a sort of a, we live in a bad neighborhood. Let's, let's be honest. Huh? We, we are very vulnerable to all sorts of things, in particular, Mother Nature, where we have these storms coming through every year. Our economies are, are vulnerable. Um, tell me something, Jenny, um, with your experience in trade, how can trade help us become much more resilient? Yes, thanks for that question. I mean, um, just to step back a little bit from what was just discussed, which is the bottom-up approach. I, I have heard so many cries for greater integration. Um, that honestly, I, I don't think that's what we're missing, is that everybody knows that's what we have to do and it, it just has to happen. I don't think the advocacy is um, is missing. I think, you know, when we think about a sub-region like the OECS and the fact that at that level, there's not even a question about um, integrating and it is facilitated obviously by the fact that we have a common currency and, you know, a commission and all of these things that push uh, the agenda. It, it says to me, as the others were saying, that it is a mindset because it is certainly possible within the smallest subregion, um, and it hasn't. It's not even questioned, um, you know, that, that that is how we we have to operate in, in order to um, to survive and in order to thrive as economy. 
So it, it, it does, you know, bring back the point that the model that we have chosen at CARICOM, um, you know, which is intergovernmental and, you know, OECS is much more of a supranational kind of entity, um, needs some rethinking, but we're, we're stuck with the model that we have right now. And I think um, there are some, some very encouraging signs based on what we saw with COVID that when the region does need to come together, it will, we just need to see this follow through. Um, with, on the specific question about trade and free trade and libertarian approaches to, to trade, I obviously am not a, a supporter of unfettered markets. I think the WTO does not even assert itself to be. I mean, even the biggest countries um, hold on to certain levels of protectionism. As we see every time we look at the stimulus packages and, and the subsidies that are provided in the United States. So there's never a case and even built into the rules. Um, is an understanding that sometimes um, countries will need out of other interests to protect their markets. Obviously, that's the exception, but these things are allowed. Now, the Caribbean faces a very specific challenge, um, one of vulnerability, and this is a very big kind of uh, advocacy piece that we have um, in all out, outside of trade in all the IFIs, that because of our environmental and our economic and our social vulnerabilities, Somehow we need some kind of special dispensation in the rules. So, you know, access to concessionary financing should not be limited only to countries with very low uh, GDP per capita, but in light of our vulnerabilities, Caribbean countries should be treated, um, you know, with the same kind of generosity of spirit as, as some of the other countries that are low income. Now, thinking about it in, a, in, in an economic environment and thinking about the ways that we would utilize that vulnerability index in order to, to, to assert our relative vulnerability um, you know, relative to other countries, um, we have been making the case very clearly um, before the IMFs and the World Banks, et cetera. I think at the WTO, it's a little bit um, of a, a more nuanced approach um, because uh, you know, the, the WTO recognizes special and differential treatment um, and there, that has come under some attack. And so we would put forward vulnerability as an alternative to the, the way that traditionally special and differential treatment has been accorded, which is just by a self-selection process. Um, so how do we actually make that trade vulnerability issue translate into policies where countries treat us um, being cognizant of these vulnerabilities that we face? And I think um, beyond just explaining as an explanatory force that because of our vulnerabilities, we may have a harder time accepting certain obligations. We may need longer transition periods. Um, apart from that, it certainly is the case that we, we bring that to bear much more in our negotiations at the WTO in terms of all of the new obligations that are being thrust upon us in the context of, of, of you know, the, the new mandates at the WTO. Um, and I think it's really, you know, to, to try to galvanize and think about ways that the rules that are supposed to be leveling for everybody recognize that we are particularly vulnerable and that makes it much more difficult for us sometimes to accord with our international obligations. And there should be some kind of reckoning with that reality, even in the trade context, outside of just the IFI context. Okay, wonderful. So we're, we're almost we're almost at the end of the program. And um, before I come to the last set of questions, I just really want to ask all three of you together, um, given that we know that to get back to some level of normalcy, we need to, we need to vaccinate. Um, and I think we did touch on this a bit. But um, I think Karen and I had estimated that we're going to need maybe about a billion dollars to try to vaccinate. Um, and I just heard, of course, Janine speak about um, we need to have access to concessional resources, um, although we're middle and high income countries. Um, could each of you just give me an idea of what you think about how can we go about paying for these vaccines? Because I think a lot of our viewers would be really interested to understand how that can happen. I'll ask you first, Therese. What's already on the table for us is that for all the members of the IDB, and so in the English speaking side, we have all the countries, Bahamas, Barbados, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana, Suriname, Belize, Haiti, are IDB members. And what the IDB has offered to 
each of its member members is to use some of the undisbursed balances that we have. So just to give you one example, in Jamaica, there were $220 million of undisbursed balances from the current portfolio. So Jamaica has a large portfolio, but in other countries, there are similar sums of money that have already been approved by the bank. But if Jamaica or Bahamas or Barbados or whoever wanted to use those resources to buy vaccines, why, you know, great, we'll help you do that. And they know that. Um, of all the countries who've taken up uh, that offer, it's Trinidad, it's Bahamas, and it's Belize so far. The others haven't, haven't responded to financing their vaccines that way and for whatever reasons that, that they have. But so resources are there. I want to say that the financing, uh, Justin, is not the issue. Financing right. is not the issue. It may be an issue, even in the case of um, Eastern Caribbean countries, there may be facilities through CDB to help them. But I don't think financing is really what's holding the vaccine uh, back. As we talked about earlier in, in this conversation, it's about you know what, what we paid for at the beginning, what was the down payment. Now we realize there's a huge gap, 90% of the population is still not covered. How do we have access to this, a supply of vaccines for, for, for those 90% of the population? I think that's the issue. I think the financing part is easily solved. Um, I mean, I know you had an idea about floating a bond. I don't think that's, that's uh, necessary. I think resources are already approved and sitting around and uh, countries just need to take the next step and say, okay, IDB, I would love you to take 20 million here and, and, and help us buy these vaccines. So I think okay. for us, that would be a good response. Um, okay. I think the bond well, issue would get complicated. It's a regional bond. We've not done that before. Yeah. It, it could be complicated. Okay. Maybe we could think about that for something else during our recovery. But so it sounds as if money is available and um, I'm just really conscious of time. And um, I'm actually gonna start um, wrapping up now and just asking uh, each of you, um, thinking about the Caribbean economy and in the future, knowing that we're now all highly dependent on either commodities or on, or on tourism, um, what does the future Caribbean economy look like? And, I, and I'm probably gonna ask you if you could just keep your responses um, maybe to about 30 seconds or so each. Um, let me ask you first, Jani, to take that. I mean, I think we've we've had that discussion um, over the last hour about the economy has to look green or blue, <laughs> um, but it certainly has to be digitized. Mm -hmm. I think um, the blue and the green, um, you know, investing in the things that we have in natural supply in, in, in great quantities. Um, you know, all around us, we have sun, we have wind, uh, we have the, the ocean economy to, to exploit sustainably. Uh, so I think it's really about the education system and, and ensuring that the people that we are, we are educating and the people that we are throwing out there are able to utilize the technology available to them to sustainably exploit the, the resources that are all around us. And I think that that has to be the way forward for our economies. Great. Karan, what are your thoughts? Well, there are, there are two sides of it. Um, in, in 15 seconds, there, there are two paths we could take. Uh, one path is the current path, which we have been going down, and that is a part of, of a dramatically continued decline, rising um, debt to GDP and mass emigration, um, coupled with very slow stagnation and decline, if we just keep continuing what we're doing now. Um, and the second path is if we genuinely take COVID-19 as, 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 and stop talking about getting back to normal and start talking about totally and radically and structurally changing every single way we do things and start problem solving and engaging with technology. That, uh, that there's, there's, those are the two parts. The, the road is before us, which one we'll take? I don't know, I'm strongly pushing for the second one, as I know is everyone on this panel and there are others too, so. Okay, great. Still hopeful, still optimistic. Therese, very quickly. Agile, digital, green, orange, blue. 
We just need to move. Uh, and I, everything Kiran said, all, all of the above, as well as Janice, I think we know what to do and uh, there's no turning back. There's no pre-COVID life. We're going, it's going to be whatever life brings from here on out. Um, we have to, we have to adapt. Right. All right. Well, look, I want to, I want to really thank each of you for spending your Saturday evening with me. Thank you, Therese. Thank you, Janiv. Thank okay. you, Kiran. This has been a wonderful discussion. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Caribbean Bridges, and I am Justin Ram. I have been hosting this discussion this Saturday evening with you. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, on YouTube. Also, check out justinram.com when you can. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Good night. <laughs>